When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on Something You Should Know, why does the microwave screw up your Wi-Fi? And how do you fix it? Then we've all noticed how time sometimes goes by very slow, and other time, time flies by. Time flies when you're having fun. When you're having fun, you're not thinking about time. So it's only afterward, when the fun is over, that you realize that time flew. So you're never aware of time flying while you are in it. Also, how much food do you eat in a year? And what's the actual shelf life of a Twinkie? And our stuff and our environment say a lot about who we are. Extroverts are a very interesting group of people because they just like other people. They do whatever they can. For example, in their offices, they make them more inviting to try and lure people into them. Whereas if people low on extroversion, their places aren't welcoming. They have uncomfortable chairs. The doors aren't open very wide. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. In our house, we have a lot of internet-connected devices. We have desktops, uh, laptops, phones, tablets, and all of them work just fine. Hook right up to the internet without much trouble. Except when we turn on the microwave. And then nothing works. And, and if you have uh, Wi-Fi and also have a microwave oven in your kitchen, you may also find that this is a problem. So why? Why does turning on the microwave disconnect and screw up the Wi-Fi? Well, the problem is that both microwave ovens and Wi-Fi operate on the same frequency, 2.4 gigahertz. 
In theory, a properly shielded microwave oven shouldn't leak any radiation, but the reality is that they leak quite a bit of radiation, resulting in electromagnetic interference, and that messes up the Wi-Fi signal. In fact, a lot of things operate at 2.4 gigahertz, so you can get Wi-Fi interference from routers, baby monitors, cordless phones, toaster ovens, electric blankets, ultrasonic pest control devices, bug zappers, heating pads, touch control lamps, as well as microwave ovens. If you want to eliminate the problem, you can upgrade to Wi-Fi equipment that operates in the 5 gigahertz band, but if it's just the microwave, the interference will only last when the microwave is on, and you probably do what we do, and we just learn to live with it. And that is something you should know. Time sure flies when you're having fun. I think we've all had that experience. But why does time fly when we're having fun? And why does it seem to slow down when we're not having fun? Why does time seem to go by faster as we get older? We all experience time, but what is it really? Here to discuss all that is Alan Burdick. Alan is a staff writer and former senior editor at The New Yorker, and he spent 10 years writing the book, Why Time Flies. Hi, Alan. Welcome. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So after examining and studying time for 10 years to write this book, how do you look at time? What is time to you? I guess the short answer is I, I started this project with the feeling that time is my enemy, and came out of it feeling like time is my friend. Now, maybe I have to feel that way because the book took 10 years to write, and in that time, um, <laughs> i got to make friends with time while I still can. But I, I guess, you know, I, I came from a place where I really thought of time as this sort of external obstacle that we that we kind of collectively put in front of ourselves. And I came out of this, you know, really with a much deeper understanding of biology and psychology and, and, and neurobiology of where our time comes from and how we generate it and, and how it, in a sense, sort of emanates from us. So it's a lot more organic than I, than I ever thought. Is time a real thing or is it just something we invented so we can kind of keep track of stuff? It's both. I mean, I, I guess I kind of came to think of time as, as almost like a language. In, in the sense that, yes, time is something that our mind generates. It's something that our bodies generate. I mean, our cells basically have 24-hour clocks in them that, that, that are pretty rigidly set by, by the kind of genetic mechanisms inside the nucleus. So the passing of time is a very real thing that we experience, but it's absolutely necessary. You can't put your finger on it any more than you can really put your finger on on the spoken word, but it's absolutely essential to societal organization or personal organization. How does science look at time? Is, does science have a pretty good handle on what time is and if for, for their purposes? You know, w- what time is really depends on what sort of scientists you talk to. There are scientists who try to understand how infants understand time. And, you know, scientists who try to understand how our neurons process time. The fact is that what we call time is actually a great number of different experiences that we sort of shove under one 
rug. You know, there's our experience of duration, how long an event seemed to last, like why is that stoplight taking too long? And there's our understanding of, you know, one thing coming after another or before another, what we call temporal sequence. There's your kind of ongoing sense that it's now, right now, and that, you know, the future is in one direction and the past is in another direction. Those are all fairly distinct experiences that, that come online in our lives at, at different times. And, um, uh, you know, we, we kind of lump them together, but, but they're quite distinct. Is there a, a good sense or a good explanation of why people have that universal experience that time goes by faster when you're having a good time, time goes a lot slower when you're, you know, sitting in the dentist chair? Yeah, and I mean, the answer to that question is, in a sense, a lot more straightforward and maybe less, uh, less exciting than one might think. The fact is that the more you think about time or what time it is, the slower time seems to go. So, you know, the expression time flies when you're having fun is true because when you're having fun, your attention is focused on what you're doing. You're, you're at a movie or you're at a, out with friends or, or whatever. You're really not paying attention to the time at all. And then when two hours or three hours or whatever has gone by, you come to the end and you're like, wow, I just noticed the time again, and uh, a lot of time had gone by. Whereas if you're at a super dull party and you're or you're in a dentist chair and you're spending that whole time thinking, I want this time to end, when does the, <laughs> when does the next event begin? Your memories of that, of that span of time are really flooded with you thinking about the time. A watch pot never boils. Correct. Because the more we think about time, the slower it goes. But it it does seem to be a fairly universal experience that time goes faster as we get older. Is that true? I mean, do surveys bear that out? It is. And it's really tricky because, in a sense, surveys do bear it out. So much so that it's not clear that it actually, that that phrase time speeds up as we get older, actually means what we think it does. So, you know, historically, the way that this was studied, you know, the the idea has been around for a long time. 50, 60 years ago, scientists started to kind of explore it in, in depth, and they would do these surveys where they would ask people, you know, how much faster would you say time goes for you now than it did 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and people would give some number like, oh, it's twice as fast or three times as fast. And, you know, like 80, 90 percent of people said on the whole that time goes faster now than it used to. But, you know, keep in mind that the question they were being asked was very much a leading question. You know, it sort of assumed that it was, you know, the answer that you got was not really helpful because, you know, if I ask you how much better does your lunch taste today than it did 20 years ago, you have no idea what you ate for lunch 20 years ago, much less how you felt about how quickly time passed. So it was kind of a meaningless meaningless question in all of those surveys. And now the way they study this question is, is more like, you know, if I ask you, okay, on a scale of minus two, minus two being very slow, to plus two, plus two being, being very fast, how, at, at what speed would you say the past month has gone by. 
So you answer that question for me. How, how on a scale of minus two to plus two, how fast has the last month gone by? Pretty fast, I'd say. It's it it went by. It's close to plus two. Close to plus two. And how about like the last year? Same. Yeah. It, it the same. Just I mean, okay. Yesterday, yesterday, my wife and I were talking, and and we said, you know, I think the cleaning lady who comes every two weeks is coming today, and she said, no, I, I think she was here last week. And she hadn't been here in two weeks, but time has gone by so fast that we thought two weeks was one week. It, to me, seems like time is just zooming by. Mm, you're actually an exception. Most people say one. It's going fast. And they say one regardless of the span of time. So a year, a month, a week, a day, 10 years goes by fast for pretty much everybody and for pretty much everybody at all ages. I mean, if you if time really were speeding up as we get older, you would think that older people, more older people would say, you know, one or two than younger people. Um, but in fact, everybody at all ages, reflecting on all spans of time, says that time goes by fast, one. Isn't that interesting that everybody perceives time as going by fast, but time just goes by. I mean, time, there's nothing more constant than the speed of time. It goes by as it goes by. It always has, and it, I guess, likely will. But our perception is that it's going, everybody's perception is that it's going by fast. Faster than what? Right. Alan Burdick is my guest. He is a staff writer and former senior editor at The New Yorker. And the name of his book is Why Time Flies. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future, Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Alan, since everybody has that perception at any age that time is going by faster then uh, is there any way to have the perception, to force the perception that slows it down? Well, you know, what, what the science shows is essentially that we, we feel the most like time is speeding up when we are busy or preoccupied. 
that is not thinking about time. Um, time flies when you're having fun, right? When you're having fun, you're not thinking about time. So it's only afterward when the fun is over that you realize that time flew. So time, you're never aware of time flying while you are in it. So really the best that you can do if you want time to slow down is to try to ignore it and dive into what is right in front of you and not think about time at all. And then if you're lucky, when you're done, you can look back and say, wow, time really flew by. Because most of the time when you're when you're sitting around thinking time is going really slowly, it's because you're really desperate for whatever situation you are in to end and, you know, and looking at the clock. But that's sort of antithetical to the kind of slowing down experience that I think you're describing. Well, that's interesting what you just said, that our perception that time flies is always a, a perception, a judgment that we make about the past. We never have the perception that right now is flying by. It's always last week flew by. Exactly. But right now, time's just time. I can look at the clock and I see the seconds and they're going at the same rate that they've always gone. <laughs> they never speed up. So They never do. I remember somebody, this just popped into my head, and so I, I don't even know that you looked into this, but I remember somebody telling me in a discussion about how um, other animals perceive time. Like, for example, one of the reasons it's so hard to swat a fly is that the fly's perception of time is different. He sees us coming at him basically in slow motion, even though we think we're going very fast. So he's leaps and bounds ahead of you because of the way the fly perceives time and his lifetime is only, you know, days or a couple weeks or something. So did, did, did you look at that at all, how other animals perceive time? A little bit. Um, I mean, it, it's a little bit, you know, deceiving. Like when we think about tortoises or, or flies or, you know, creatures with kind of different lifespans than ours and different movement rates. And, and we, we sort of imagine them like peeping out of their eye holes the way we peep out of our eye holes and things moving at a different rate than it moves for us. But I'm not sure that that's a helpful way to put yourself in the mind of the animal because, you know, for, for us, time has this whole other layer. You know, psychologists would say that, that your sense of self, of, of who you are, is really rooted in your ability to understand that the person that you were yesterday and the memories that you had about yesterday will belong to you next week and next year, right? Your, your sense of self is the understanding that yourself will remain the same through time, right? Animals just don't have that. I mean, time has this element of consciousness for us that it really doesn't have for animals. So, I mean, it, it is true that mosquitoes move a lot faster than we do, but I, I just don't think thinking about it in terms of time is, is useful because it, it sort of deceives us into thinking that we can place ourselves in the minds of insects somehow or, or, or turtles in a way that they just don't really have the same experience as we do. You know, I've always thought that, well, you know, when, when a fly is at the end of his two-week life, is he like feeling, God, I'm just so done. I'm just so tired. <laughs> because that seems so odd to me that, you know, it's just been two weeks. It's, you know, you hardly got started and now you're done. 
it's a pretty slippery topic, this whole thing about time, because it's so hard to, you can't, you can't really touch it. You can't see, it's there, and you know it's there, but it's not anything you can kind of put your arms around and say, oh, this is time, and now I get it. I mean, in a way, that's sort of what, what drew me to this subject in the first place, because it is, you know, it's really all pervasive, and yet so non-tangible that I wanted to find a way to, to really kind of talk about it um, in a way that, you know, the reader could touch almost. I, I sort of made a point in the book of, of really f- focusing on um, experiments and studies that have been done over time because it, it, it's sort of the one way that scientists have been able to, to start to wrap their, you know, wrap their fingers around what this stuff we call time is. Can you just mention, like, Two of your favorite little studies that you found that 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 help explain that. Oh, I I, um, I spent be- some really fascinating t- time in a, in the lab of a, a developmental psychologist, a guy who works with infants, and um, and and began to you know try to kind of understand how these you know these are babies basically you know looking at um, at monitors in which you know they're like talking lips you know. Basically, he was trying to understand, like, these lips on the screen make, make noise. There's a voice coming out of them. And, and somehow the babies were really good at connecting the, the sight of the lips moving with the sound that was coming out of them, even if the sound that was coming out of them was, like, in Spanish or in another language that the baby didn't know. So how, you know, how could the baby basically synchronize an audio sequence and a video sequence without actually understanding what the content of that stuff was. Um, you know, it's like when we watch, um, you know, you're watching TV sometimes and, and, and the cable, there's suddenly this lag and you're like, oh my God, the, the lips and the voice don't match up anymore. If, if that lag gets longer than about 80 milliseconds, um, it drives adults crazy. But it turns out that, that babies can withstand like, two-thirds of a second of lag between audio and video before they notice that anything's wrong. Um, it's like they have a much more expansive sense of what now is than, than we do, much more forgiving. Well, it is so interesting that, you know, the old saying, all we have is time, and even though that's all we do have, uh, it's really hard to get your head around it and understand what it is and how it works. It, but no one's done a better job of trying than you have. My guest has been Alan Burdick. He is a staff writer and former senior editor at The New Yorker. His book is called Why Time Flies, and there's a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You have stuff. Your home is full of your stuff. But what does your stuff say about you? Anything? Can you really tell much about someone by looking at their stuff, their belongings, the things in the back of their closet? Apparently so, says Sam Gosling. He explores this in his very popular book, Snoop, What Your Stuff Says About You. Hey Sam, so what do you mean you can tell about a person from their stuff? I mean, if somebody has a picture of Diamond Head on their wall, I can tell they probably like Hawaii. And I, I can tell by looking at their stuff whether or not they're neat or messy. But what do you mean by it? 
Well, th th there are a number of different ways things say things about us. Some of those ways are deliberate ways we affect the environment. So if we put up a poster on the wall or we put up a memento from a vacation, that's deliberately expressing something uh, to communicate to others or, or in some cases to communicate to ourselves. We also affect the environment by um, uh, uh, modifying it to make us feel a certain way, creating a relaxing environment or an invigorating environment. And then the final way we affect the environment is by just doing behaviors, and then we inadvertently leave traces of, of, of our behaviors in those spaces. And those traces can also tell us about the person who lives there, too. But can't you come back from a vacation, let's say, and, and put a picture from your vacation on your TV set because you like it? it? It doesn't really say anything about you. It just means you like the picture. Uh, yeah, you, you could, but, but I, and I think that's how most of it works. How, that's how most of it feels. Most of it feels, oh, I like that picture, or I think, you know, it's really, the, the sofa feels really good over there, or here's, here's a few photos of myself or, or some people that I'm going to put up on my screensaver. And I think you're right, that, that is the phenomenology of it. It's just how it, fe it feels right. But there is some reason that there were 10,000 pictures you could have got on vacation, and, you, and, there are, and there are 300 places around the house you could have displayed them. What caused you to put those in those places? And so that's really what I'm interested in. And, 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 and to be sure, in some cases, it probably is just chance. That's why uh, we look for a sort of broad pattern of, of, uh, of behaviors and displays. So can you give me some examples of, like, what says what about a person? Sure. And, uh, well, we, we find that many different spaces tell you about people. And, and by spaces, I'm, I'm talking very broadly here, not just living spaces, but also office spaces, um, the environments, the musical environments we create ourselves, our playlists, um, our, our Facebook profiles, our web pages, and so on. So what we have found, for example, is that people often assume that very, very messy places are a key to, uh, to high creativity. Well, that, that turns out not to be true. Uh, messy places are a key to what I call this um, uh, uh, air traffic controller factor. So as you might expect, people who are organized, orderly, think before they act and so on. And if you really want to find out if somebody's high on creativity, you need to look for a different set of clues. That is, you want to look for very distinctive spaces and very broad range of items, not 500 books all on the same topic. Say 10 books all on different topics would be more diagnostic. So messy just may mean you're messy. Messy, yeah, messy may just mean you're messy, and it, it, there, are very, there are very creative people who are messy and very creative people who are tidy. Yeah, it, it's irrelevant to that. It's relevant to some things, like this air traffic controller factor. But people go beyond that, too. People also think that people who are messy tend to be lower on agreeableness. We found that in our studies, that people form that impression. Wait, wait, I, did, I didn't understand that. Lower than what? Lower on agreeableness, how nice you are, how, what I call the Mr. Rogers factor, how sympathetic, kind, warm, and so on. They think people, they think the people who, with messy spaces are lower on that. And it's an automatic assumption. It's not something people are doing deliberately. They're not saying, you have this, therefore I think this. But people who have those spaces tend to be rated lower on those traits. But can it just be that you're just a little messy, and, and that's the beginning and the end of it? There's nothing more to it than that. You can't attach other traits to that. Uh, I don't like necessarily to tidy up a lot, so I'm messier than my wife, say, who, who doesn't like a mess and is much more likely to tidy up. That's just our natures. But, but couldn't it be that that's all it says? But that's exactly what I'm trying to find out, your nature. I, I agree. <laughs> it, it, it is because it's your nature, but that, that's exactly what I'm interested in finding out. But my point is that couldn't it just end there? That's your nature. 
Well, it could, but, but research has shown that it, it, that it typically doesn't. Research has shown that people who tend to be um, uh, have a certain nature also is, is, is associated with a broader array of, of traits. Of course, not in every case, but on average it is. So on average, people who are messy, they tend to be, they tend to be people who don't think ahead so much. They tend to be a bit more impulsive than, than, than others. Uh, they uh, often find it harder to um, be time-oriented and task-focused and so on. Well, you, <laughs> you nailed me on that one. Uh, there's something interesting on, on the book jacket uh, about how music can help you make friends. So talk, talk about that. Well, we, we were interested in what, uh, what uh, sources people use when they are trying to get to know each other. So we ran an experiment where people had to get to know each other over a sort of a computer chat session. So they'd never meet anyone. And we wanted to see which topics they used. And it turns out that they overwhelmingly use uh, music preferences over any other source of information when they're getting to know each other across a six-week period. And so we then said, well, okay, well, how, how strongly is music related to personality? People are clearly using it as part of their, um, of part of, uh, their uh, techniques to try and get to know each other. Are they doing the right thing? And it turns out that music preferences are related to what people like. And so somebody is pretty good at judging you, even if they've only heard your, te- uh, your top ten songs. So we'd get, a, we'd get a bunch of subjects. We'd say, what are your top ten songs? We'd record them on a CD, and then we'd give those to somebody else. And somebody else who had just heard that, was, was uh, pretty good at, at figuring out some of your traits. Not all of them, again, but some of your traits shone through in your music collections. And so, therefore, the conclusion is what? The, the conclusion is that, that, our, that our music preferences uh, do reveal things about, about what we're like. And they reveal uh, things uh, not only in terms of the specific genres. So if I, if I you know, knew what genres you listen to, I could make good guesses at the sorts of traits you'd be higher on, but also in terms of broad um, themes in that music. So, for example... Um, extroverts are a very interesting group of people because they just like other people. They do whatever they can. For example, in their offices, they make them more inviting to try and lure people into them and just hang out, whereas, agreeable, uh, whereas people low on extroversion try to... Uh, their places aren't welcoming. You go in and you just don't, they have uncomfortable chairs. The doors aren't open very wide. You just don't, don't hang out there very long. But, but extroverts also like people. They like uh, uh, photos of people. And it, this is reflected in music. They even prefer on average, music with voices in to music without voices in. So you can look for broad themes there. And, and of course, if you can actually get to look at someone's music collection, you can, you can pick up clues to other traits too. So, for example, is it organized? Uh, has, has it, are they somebody who, who uh, lives with a completely disorganized music collection? Are they somebody like me who occasionally tries to get organized but just doesn't have the uh, personality to pull it off? I thought, and maybe I misread this, but that thing about music and how what people's musical tastes says, I thought what that was saying was that if you want to make friends, that, that music, your taste in music is uh, about as good a subject as there is to help other people understand who you are and, and find that common ground if there is any. What it means is that that is a very efficient way of communicating uh, your your preferences, values, and attitudes to other people. Yeah. And do people find that if your taste in music is radically different than my taste in music, that that either uh, we don't like each other so much, or or we're less likely to get along because of that? Um, th- there is some uh, support for that. Yeah, but but yeah. So give me some more examples of what about my stuff tells you what about me. 
Okay. Well, one of the things I like to do, you know, very broadly when I am um, uh, looking at a space is, is look at an object and think, okay, first of all, what is the object? Then what is its state? The state of the object is very useful because that tells you how it's been used. So I could go into um, two offices, both of which have a desk calendar, but I shouldn't just say, oh, they both have desk calendars. This means they are uh, punctual and organized and so on. I ne you need to look at the state. So is, are they both turned to the right day? One of them may be turned to 20 days ago, hasn't been used. Are they both filled out? Are they filled out consistently? Um, so is one really being used and integrated into this person's life in a sensible way? So I'd look at the state. And then I also look at the orientation of things. The orientation gives you a lot of clues as to its, um, its uh, psychological function. Um, so one of the great examples of this is, is, is the photos people have in their offices. Do they have uh, photos that face them? If they have photos that uh, face them, that's what we uh, call a sort of a social snack. It's there in order to provide um, sustenance, emotional sustenance, while, while that photo of a loved one or a loved pet or a special place uh, what, what, to help you think of those while you cannot be physically in touch with them. Whereas if the photo is turned away and it's facing others, then it's doing something very different. It's making a statement to others about how the occupant would like to be regarded. Not, not necessarily a dis disingenuous one. So, that, so those are the, sort of the general principles I go in. Uh, one of the mistakes that um, novice people make when, when they're snooping around a place is they try and do this thing of saying, okay, if you have X, it means Y. They try to make a jump of, y, of one thing meaning something else. And I wish the world was that simple, but it just isn't. Because there are actually many different reasons why you might have something in a space. And, 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 we, and we can do that if we look at the items in our own space. So, you know, I, you know there was a, a time where I had uh, a, a, a religious musical CD sitting on my desk. Now, you think, okay, does a religious musical CD mean he likes religious music and all the traits associated with that? Well, no, because I had it there because it was for a teaching exercise, not because I liked it. I could have had it there because I was going to give it as a gift to someone. So one of the really crucial uh, things for snoopers to do is, is not to take a code book approach that if you have one thing, it means something else. That simply cannot be done. Yeah, it's more like a doctor. I think it's a doctor. You know, if you go into a doctor and say, okay, I have a headache, they don't say, oh, well, you have malaria. They say, oh, okay, you, you have a headache, so that makes me think you might have this range of, of uh, things wrong with you. Let me ask you some other questions to help narrow it down. Yeah, well, I, I would hate to go to that doctor who said, oh, you have a headache, you must have malaria. Uh, so uh, why is this important? Well, I think it's important for a number of reasons. One of, one of the reasons is in terms of getting to know others and understanding how others get to know us. So often we do want to get to know what others are like, and I think snooping can help us do that. And, and, and indeed, a lot of research shows that people want to be known, um, and, and that's one of the reasons I think that offices are so um, often decorated and homes are often so decorated. It's because people are genuinely trying to get others to see them as they see themselves. Um, so, that, so that's one reason. Another reason is it's important to know how others are forming impressions of us. So this example I, I gave where you have a messy space and people jump to conclusions about, say, your creativity and how nice you are and your uh, time orientation, it's good to know that people are going to automatically, unconsciously form those impressions about you. So, that, so that, that, that's one reason. The other reason I think is interesting is in really just um, uh, shedding light on how we are connected to the spaces around us. So um, um, one of the people I talk about in my book, Chris Travis, runs an architecture firm where he is using this understanding of, of our connections between 
our places and the people who live in them, to design spaces well suited to uh, people, very well designed to what they want. So uh, bringing out their psychological connections. And he finds with his clients that he, he develops these places that are just people feel fit them very well. And, I, and it also has implications, of course, for how we design our own workspaces. When you look and see how important it is for people to express who they are to others, that shows, okay, well, maybe having a clear desk policy and hot desks aren't such a good idea. Maybe we really need to give people the ability to um, express who they are to others. Have you found that there are particular hot spots that reveal more that if you wanted to learn about somebody that it's the you know the best place to look if you only had one place to look is the living room or the kitchen or the closet or wherever and 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 what would you look for yeah i would i like to look at places but also i considering sort of what function those places serve so for example i like to compare private places with public places because that tells you is the person trying to project one image but really behave another way do they have all the intellectual highbrow learned books sitting on the coffee table in the in the living room but in the bedroom they have all the sort of trashy romance novels or something like that so you look for a discrepancy between the projection and um, how they actually behave. But, but having done that, I, I like to look at people's um, uh, personal spaces, like their bedrooms, the places that are more private, because that often shows how they're actually behaving, what's really important to them, to their, sen- to their um, uh, deeper sense of self. And, and one of the places I really like to look is, is the photos people choose to have of themselves. Because in this day and age, you know, we could have thousands of photos. There are many, many different photos we could display. Which of the, why did we choose these particular ones? Why did you choose to have the photo of you meditating on the top of a mountain in India rather than the one of you, you know, yelling at the camera with all of your friends drunkenly after a night on the town? You know, and, and, and some people choose one photo, some people choose the other. And these are really t- talking about this, the, the type of image of the self that the person wants to project to others. But it does seem, too, that people try to project an image that's not them. That, you know, I mean, I've been in people's homes where, you know, the living room is gorgeous and, and lovely and modern or whatever. It doesn't really reflect who they are, because I know who they are. And it, it's not really them. It's, it's beautiful, but it's not really them. But maybe in the bedroom, things could be different. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, that's right. I think these people who are projecting these images, I don't think they're being disingenuous. I think they're really trying to tell you, here is who I am. And we know that when they're successful at that, when people are successful at getting others to see them as others, uh, as they see themselves, those people tend to be happier, healthier, and more productive. I bet if you ask people who haven't heard our discussion, I bet if you asked people if their stuff tells much about them, I don't think they would think that it tells as much as you think it does. Well, I don't think they are, um, you know, they're thinking about it consciously. So I think that's one of the, the things that I have found interesting with this research, is this, is this, we, we're constantly um, crafting our spaces, but we're not consciously thinking, okay, I want to project an image of a sensation seeker, so I'm going to put up the picture of me parachuting. They're not going through that process consciously. They just think, they're thinking, ah, oh, I like this one. And so they put, and so they put it up. So I think it's so, but, and, and so it's only when you sort of begin to think, okay, how, what psychological function is this serving that you begin to unpack the various elements in our spaces? 
Well, this is good to know because armed with this, you can go into people's homes and or in their offices when you're talking to them and look around and, and, and get a sense of maybe who they really are compared to who they really want you to think they are. Sam Gosling has been my guest. The book is Snoop, What Your Stuff Says About You, and there is a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Sam. You don't need to know a whole lot about the food you eat because you assume it's safe and you probably have other things to think about. However, there are some things about food you may want to know. For example, most of the salmon that we eat is actually dyed pink. Wild salmon are pink in color because of the little crustaceans called krill that they eat. But farm salmon, which accounts for about two-thirds of the salmon we eat, are fed pellets to dye their flesh pink, which is otherwise naturally gray. An ear of corn will almost always have an even number of rows. What's in your peanut butter may shock you. According to the FDA, there may be up to an average of 30 or more insect fragments per 100 grams of peanut butter, and an average of one or more rodent hairs per 100 grams of peanut butter. Ew. Twinkies actually do have a shelf life. It's about 45 days. Honey does not have a shelf life. It may crystallize and change color over time, but honey never goes bad. Avocados, pumpkins, bananas, and watermelon are actually berries. But strawberries are not berries. Almonds are part of the peach family. And the average American... This shocked me. The average American will eat about one ton of food per year. And that is something you should know. If you enjoyed this podcast, I invite you to share it with just one other person or with your social media friends. If you share it, people will admire your good taste and be your friend forever. Possibly shower you with gifts. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.